Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Tonight, True Crime Night-ish, number six begins, as I'm going to talk about Carmel, Indiana, and the Fox Hollow Farm. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Hello, everyone, and welcome to True Crime Night number six, aka 6.05. And uh, just to warn you, the gremlins are in uh, full force tonight already. Uh, I took a nap and I overslept. My fault because I had set my alarm up as a 
sleep timer instead of an alarm. Alarm alarm. And I never set it back. So when I got to the end of the timer, it didn't do anything. And uh, so I did wake up. I'm working on it now, obviously. Let's see, what else have we had? Uh, technical difficulties straight off the bat. Nothing that a restart couldn't cure. And uh, my 3D printed on-air sign broke and I had to take it down. Now I have to fix that as well. But everything is working. Everything is going. So hopefully nothing else uh, weird happens and I can get the show done here in a little bit and get it ready and get it out. <laughs> so if you're hearing this on Sunday like intended, everything went okay. Or if you're hearing this from the future, then none of this matters and you probably don't care. But enough about all that. Tonight is True Crime Night. It is the sixth episode of True Crime Night, which means it is the middle of the season. And uh, I'm going to do things a little differently. Instead of talking about a couple of stories, this is going to be one of those rare uh, one-town episodes that's not a season finale. And we're just going to talk about Carmel, Indiana. We're going to talk about uh, Herb Baumeister, uh, the I-70 killer, as a lot of people have crowned him as, and uh, the home that he bought in Carmel, Indiana, known as Fox Hollow Farm. And then we're going to get into uh, some of the subsequent haunting and paranormal activity that has come out of Fox Hollow Farm. And uh, so that'll be the second part of of the town of the episode. Instead of two towns, we're going to talk about Carmel. One, we're going to talk about uh, the true crime aspect, and then we're going to come back and talk about the paranormal uh, aspect of this story. And before I get into it, I do just want to preference one thing very quick. I know that this can be maybe a little bit of a touchy subject uh, because, you know, you have these people investigating uh, the house of this serial killer and getting this paranormal activity. Might seem like a little weird at first, but... It's it's really as the the owners of that house currently do open up the home to investigators every once in a while, and I really think the reason for that is uh it is really just to keep the memories of the victims alive and the story alive because um I'll let you know right up front her Baumeister he never paid for his crimes he was never arrested he was never convicted. I'll, obviously, I'll get into why later in the episode. So, without that, you know, there was never anything there. And I think a lot of people can easily forget what had happened and uh, push it back because it wasn't this like, you know, at the time it probably was, but over the years it hasn't become this kind of high profile true crime case like so many other serial killers out there. And I kind of think by letting uh, people come in and do investigations of this place, it has helped bring it more to the forefront and bring the victims more to the far forefront and uh, keep their names out there and keep all of this on people's minds so that uh, they don't forget what happened there. And uh, that's the, you know that's the way that they've chosen to go with it. So we're going to talk about Fox Hollow Farm tonight. We're going to talk about Carmel, Indiana. We're going to talk about 
Herb Baumeister. We're going to talk, you know, paranormal, all that stuff. That is the episode tonight. And then, of course, some local headlines. And then uh, I'm also going to do something a little see- a different in uh, Your Small Town Secret. And I'm going to uh, talk about my trip down to uh, Tennessee over Memorial Day weekend and uh, stopping off at uh, the International Paranormal Museum and uh, some other stuff like that, some stuff that I got into, stuff I planned on getting into, stuff I didn't plan on getting into. Uh, that will be, that is show-related, very much. So that is the episode. That is what we're going for. And uh, let's start off with just talking about Herb Baumeister and who he was and what he did and uh, and all of that. Ted Bundy murdered my dad's friend's sister in 1974 while on his reign of terror in Utah. At least, Bundy admitted to killing her just before his execution, but police were never able to locate her body. That's the topic of just one episode on Straight Up Enigmas, a podcast to explore the unexplained. Spine-tingling supernatural stories, historical mysteries, and true criminal cases are all things to expect when you tune in to our show. We discuss the mysterious deaths of the Jameson family, share terrifying true stories from real people about sleep paralysis, and explore Cleopatra's missing tomb. I'm Jaden McKell, and I'm the host of Straight Up Enigmas. Our bite-sized bi-weekly episodes focus on the world's strangest mysteries, sacred and sonic geometry, the murder of Karen Silkwood, Turkmenistan's door to hell, the curse of the omen, and much more. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find podcasts. Before we get into tonight's topics, I want to take a minute and let you know that there is so much more small town secrets to enjoy. Check out the Patreon. There are one, two, and three dollar tiers of support with stuff like a shout out on the main show, exclusive buttons and stickers, MP3s to the music I create, also an ad slash promo free version of the main show as well as STS Backroads, the Patreon-only podcast that comes out in the off weeks, which means you'll get content every week, all in your own RSS feed. There is all of this and more. To sign up, go to patreon.com slash stscast or stscast.com and click on the support tab. And now, on with tonight's episode. Carmel, Indiana boasts a population of just over 100,000 people. Just north of Indianapolis, the state's capital city, the town borders the White River to its side. Today, it's known as the roundabout capital of the, of the USA, due to its 128 or so roundabouts. It's also known for something else. Fox Hollow Farm, the home of the I-70 killer, her Baumeister. Baumeister was born on April 7, 1947. He was the oldest of his three other siblings, and by all accounts, led a pretty normal life. However, as he grew older, he started to exhibit some odd behavior. It was known to some of his friends that he liked to play with dead animals. He had once 
placed a dead crow on his teacher's desk in elementary school just to get a reaction. He also seemed to have a fascination with urine. He had been caught in school once openly urinating in public and had asked his classmates what it would be like to drink one's own urine. Eventually, Herb's father had him psychologically tested and Herb was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Even though it would appear that Herb underwent little, if any, treatment for his mental illness, he graduated high school in 1965 and went on to attend Indiana University with plans to become a doctor like his father. In 1967, Baumeister dropped out of college. His father helped him to secure a job at the Indianapolis Star, uh, the oldest newspaper, I believe, in Indiana. By uh, the early 70s, he had married a woman named Jane and found a new job at the BMV. This job wouldn't last long. That year for Christmas, he sent out a Christmas card to his fellow BMV employees. On the card was a picture of him and another man dressed completely in drag. He also sent one of these cards to the then governor of Indiana, Edgar Whitcomb. This card was soaked in Baumeister's own urine. Over the years, Baumeister would have a few run-ins with the law, but always found a way to wriggle out of any consequences. Then, in 1988, Herb and his wife borrowed $4,000 from Herb's mother and started the first of what would become a chain of thrift stores known as Save-A-Lot. And uh, that's, that is actually how this got on my radar. I've mentioned this on the show before. I used to make uh, labels for food scales, so I've dealt with every grocery store out there, and I have dealt with Save-A-Lot. And I'm not sure if this, because it was a thrift store, it wasn't a grocery store, uh, was ever you know, used uh, by by our services. But there are just so many, because there are like, I don't know, I bet there's six or eight different Save-A-Lots in the country. There is like Save-A-Lot with Save spelled correctly. There's Save-A-Lot with, you know, S-A-V-A-Lot. There's Save-A-Lot as one word. There's Save-A-Lot. Like, there's a bunch of different iterations of that same name. So I'm not sure. I don't think it ever became a grocery store. Maybe So maybe I never dealt with it. But its logo looked a little familiar. But that is kind of how they... That's how it got on my radar as I, I found out about Save-A-Lot. And then uh, went on went on from there. So he opened these Save-A-Lot thrift stores. Ended up opening a chain of them. Stretched across, I think, into Ohio and stuff like that eventually. So by this time, Baumeister was a family man with three children. And there was something else, something much darker happening in the background during the time. In 1989, the body of 26-year-old Stephen Elliott was found along Interstate 70, just east of Indianapolis. And then, in 1990, another body was discovered. This one was that of Clay Boatman, also on I-70. When these remains were discovered, older cases suddenly seemed to fall into place. For example, Eric Rodiger 
was only 17 when his remains were discovered in 1985. Not on I-70, he was found just on a, a road somewhere, but uh, it was very much the same MO other than that. All in all, nine bodies would be attributed to the I-70 killer, most of them being found between Indianapolis and Columbus, Ohio. Even though there was never any real evidence to tie Herb Baumeister to these killings, he did travel between the two cities rather often due to save a lot business trips. Another reason in hindsight is that in 1991, the I-70 murders seemed to stop. This was the year that Herb Baumeister and his family moved in to Fox Hollow Farm. Fox Hollow Farm is an 18-acre estate farm in the opulent town of Carmel, Indiana. The house was large, the grounds were large, with much of it covered in trees. And at the time, Fox Hollow Farm was very much secluded from the rest of town, and that brought with it a sense of privacy. Because of this, it is surmised that Baumeister no longer needed to dispose of his victims along the highway, but now could do it literally in his own backyard. Soon, young men would start disappearing from Indianapolis gay bars. In 1993, Alan Livingston, Richard Hamilton, and Jeffrey Jones would all go missing. Followed in 1994 by Alan Broussard, Stephen Hale, and Roger Goodlett. Investigator Mary Wilson was giving the missing persons cases, and uh, she was helped out time to time by a private investigator that was hired by the Goodlett family. His name was Virgil Vandegrift. For a little while, they had little to go on, other than that all the men were last seen in gay bars around town. They needed a break, and that break would come by a man who uh, we'll call Tony. So I'm gonna I, I'm gonna preference this. Uh, a lot of the information I got for this book is from the great Richard Eastep, or for this book, for this podcast, is from the book uh, The Horrors of Fox Hollow Farm, Unraveling the History and Hauntings of a Serial Killer's Home by the great Richard Eastep, who I also used his book for the Ferrar School episode uh, a while back, like last season, season before that, I don't remember when. But he got in contact with Tony, and Tony is an alias... He asked to keep his name out of the book. He didn't want, you know. So Tony is not his real name. And I see no reason to uh, change that. If he, if those are his wishes, I will respect them as well. I will say this, though. A little bit of research. Uh, you can find out his real name. Uh, I did, and I wasn't even looking for it. So it, it is out there. But we're going to call him Tony, just like Richard did in his book. You see, one night... Tony noticed a man he had not seen before at his favorite bar, the 501 Tavern. This man was staring at a missing persons poster of Roger Goodlett. Tony approached the man and asked him if he recognized the young man on the poster. He said that he did not. The two struck up a conversation, and the man told Tony that his name was Brian Smart. After some time, Smart asked Tony if he wanted to go to Smart's employer's house and take a dip in the pool. 
Brian and Tony then drove out of, out of the city to Carmel to Fox Hollow Farm. Brian Smart was indeed her Baumeister. And while in the pool, Baumeister attempted to strangle Tony with a length of hose. Tony pretended to pass out, and when her Baumeister let loose the hose, Tony popped back up and accused her Baumeister of being the one responsible for uh, all of his missing friends. See, Tony, um, he has his own stories to tell. I didn't really touch on it a lot. Uh, I'll let you guys grab that book. It's a great book. I'll let you guys read all of what Tony got into, but I will talk about him a little bit here and there. Um, he kind of, you know, obviously he was upset about what was happening. Uh, he knew that probably a whole lot wasn't going to get done about it. And uh, I think when, even from the beginning, I think he kind of sized this guy up a little bit and thought like, this guy's suspicious, this guy's weird. And maybe took it upon himself to, to do something about it. So when this happened, he knew he was in the right place. And then even after this, like, he continued to, like, drink and party with Baumeister that night. I'm not sure if this was, like, an attempt to just, you know, keep him pacified and and so that he could get out of there and do whatever. But he did. And uh, he, he made it back and uh, would go on to really be the catalyst of what would bring Baumeister down in the end. Tony went to the authorities with his concerns, but little could be done without proof. So Tony hatched a plan to get her Baumeister's license plate number. It took some time, took almost a year, but by the next spring, her Baumeister came back to the 501 Tavern. Tony struck up a conversation to distract Baumeister while one of Tony's friends ducked out of the bar and grabbed the license plate number. Now, the police had something to go on. Mary Wilson wasted no time in visiting her Baumeister at one of his Save-A-Lot locations. Baumeister was reluctant to talk, but finally did admit he did go to the bar from time to time. But that is about all he would say. In fact, there's this great little thing in the book about how he, how he was like, contact my lawyer, here's my lawyer. Uh, she did, their lawyer's like, we don't know who that is. And she had this runaround with uh, with the lawyer and Baumeister for a little bit. And then eventually he would retain that lawyer and actually make him his lawyer. And then that time it was like, no, you can't search the property. That's all she wanted to do. She wanted to search the property. And uh, you can't do this, you can't do that. Basically stopped her in her tracks. But in 1995, things would start to turn for her Baumeister. His luck was running out. That winter, his son would find a complete skeleton behind the house, just where the woods met with the yard. Startled and confused, Jane confronted her about the skeleton. He told her it was just one of his father's old anatomical skeletons. Which, I don't know. I don't know if I'd believe that. I don't know if anyone would believe that. Maybe today you wouldn't believe that. Maybe in 1995 you would. But I guess his, his dad was a doctor, so there is some 
little grain of plausibility to it. Herb Baumeister promptly got rid of the skeleton, and that seemed to appease his wife, at least for a little bit. By this time, Herb and Jane's marriage was starting to fail. The business was not doing well, and the bills and the upkeep of Fox Hollow Farm were piling up. It had gotten to the point where Herb Baumeister was staying in an apartment that was it was still attached to the house, but it was above the garage, it's like an attached garage, and then above it is an apartment, and then the apartment had its own like outdoor entrance. So you could get into the apartment and never have to go through the house, or even you could close it off, and it was completely private. So that's where he was actually staying near the end. He wasn't even staying in the main house. And as time went on, things began to grind at Jane, to say the least. The way the early murders seemed to line up with the route her Baumeister took on his business trips. The real skeleton her son had found in their own backyard. The poking by the police who wanted to search the property. Herb had said time and time again that the police were after him because of a story a disgruntled employee had made up about him to get some sort of revenge. A story that she wasn't so sure was made up anymore. Then one day, Herb Baumeister was at the lake with his son. I, I believe they had like a lake house up at, you know, at some vacation destination that they would go to. Jane called their lawyer and told him that she was ready to cooperate with the police. Detectives, sheriffs, and forensic anthropologist Stephen Naraki swarmed into Fox Hollow Farm. They would uncover a hellish and disturbing sight. All of the grounds, especially in the wooded areas of Fox Hollow Farm, they would uncover human bones and thousands of bone fragments. It appeared that someone had not even buried the bodies, but had simply left them out in the open to succumb to the elements and then picked apart by the animals. Some of the newer remains closer to the house were found in a burn pile. It was surmised that Herb Baumeister would eventually start to burn the remains after nature was done with them. All in all, the remains of eight victims were found and identified, but there were so many other remains that it is estimated that there were uh, the remains of 17 other people who were not identified. Police were dispatched to the lake to retrieve Baumeister's son. After they left, Herb remained at the lake until he saw the story on the news. He knew that his time was up. Herb Baumeister left the lake and hightailed it for Canada. And while there, he fell asleep in his car, only to be awoken hours later by a Mountie who told him he couldn't park there, it wasn't safe, and he'd have to move. The Mountie later reported seeing a pile of VHS tapes in Herb's back seat. These tapes were never found, and we have no idea what was on them. After he was told to leave, Baumeister went to Pinery Provisional Park by Lake Huron. 
he found a spot close to the shore of the lake, wrote a suicide note, and shot himself with a single bullet. He noted the reason for the one bullet in the suicide letter. He didn't want some kid coming up upon the gun and hurting himself. And that is kind of this weird dichotomy that this guy could take the lives of probably at least 16 people, maybe more like 18, uh, normally by strangulation with that hose. You know, uh, I think maybe a couple of them were shot. He did have this gun. He called this gun Dirty Harry. Of course he did. And, uh, like that. But mostly it was strangulation with that hose. And here's something that I found kind of disturbing. Uh, Richard Eastep, when they were investigating, was told by Tony that that hose was still there in the house. Like it was like part of the, you know, part of maintenance for the pool. And since he was never caught or convicted of anything because he killed himself, like they never really did like a search. They didn't need to, you know, they were like, well, we, we can't do anything now. So they like never took any evidence or anything of that. I mean, other than bone fragments and stuff. So that, that hose just stayed in the house, which, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's still there. I don't know, but I, yeah, I don't like that at all. Herb Baumeister committed suicide on July 3rd of 1996. As I said, he was never arrested or convicted of any of his crimes. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. For years, Fox Hollow Farm sat vacant, overgrown, and falling apart. Then, in 2006, Robert and Vicki Graves and their sons were looking to start a horse farm and fell in love with the place. Even the property's dark history did not deter them, and after a few offers and some running around, they were able to purchase the property in 2008. Moving in in 2009, they eventually got it because when the Baumeisters bought it, they didn't buy it outright because it was still like 900 grand. And we're talking 900 grand in 1988 money. And uh, they bought it on contract where they were going to like pay half up front and then pay the rest of it over a course of so many years. And then of course, everything that happened happened and Vicky couldn't pay for the property and uh, had to give it up. And so it just went back to the person who originally owned it and they could never sell it. They eventually sold it to, uh, to the Graves family for what the land was worth because it was like, you're the only people that have ever put a serious offer in on this property and they're the only ones that have ever come to me asking, seeing that they really wanted it or not. And so they eventually got it and that's, that's why it took them a little bit of time. Things started small. They started with the vacuum. One day, Vicky was cleaning the pool area. She fired up the vacuum, only for it to shut down a minute or so later. She found that it had become unplugged. Thinking she had just overreached the length of the cord, uh, she picked it up, she plugged it back in, and started uh, vacuuming once again. Only for it to become unplugged again, and at this time, she noticed that there was plenty of slack on the cord and it seemed to be sitting much farther away from uh, the, I don't think it was plugged into an outlet, I think it was plugged into an extension cord. It was it was farther away from the extension cord than you think it would have if it had come out because you pulled too on it, like a foot, foot and a half or something like that. And that was a little weird. Maybe not necessarily paranormal, but you think about it in hindsight, it was a little weird. And then, after a few months after moving in, Robert offered a fellow employee by the name of Joe LeBlanc, LeBlanc, I am sorry, the upstairs apartment, Herb's old apartment, because he was looking for a place to live. He accepted the offer and moved in a month later. That very night, he had a strange nightmare of him running through the woods, being chased by something. And uh, this was a catalyst. This was the start of his experiences at Fox Hollow Farm. Soon after Joe moved in, Vicky was startled by seeing what she could only describe as a trespasser, a man dressed in a red shirt. She had seen him walking almost carefree around the property one day as she came home from work. She watched him 
as uh, he walked and then just disappeared, fading into thin air. Later that same evening, Joe took his dog for a walk after dinner. Joe came upon that same spot where Vicky had seen the man in red earlier. It was here that he saw that same man in red. Joe and his dog, who uh, seemed to tense up at the very sight of the entity, watched as it walked into the woods and again disappeared. As the entity vanished, Joe's dog chased after it. Joe followed the dog further into the woods. He found the dog, but saw no other signs of the man in red. Vicky and Joe had shared a truly odd experience, but later, down the road, Joe would have a terrifying one all to his own. One night, he was awoken by the sound of pounding on the outside door of the apartment. He called out, but nothing came of it. Finally, he knew he had to answer. Whomever it was, was not going away. He found no one at the door, but he did find the door's knocker had stopped and it was stuck in an almost like upright straight position as if someone was holding it into place. As soon as he noticed that, the knocker fell back down uh, to where it would normally be if no one was using it. He closed the door behind him and when he started back to bed, he heard the door slowly open. As he turned, the door flew open, and an unknown figure of a man ran towards him and through the apartment before vanishing. Joe has said that this is not the same entity as the man in red. Sometime after this, Joe and a friend were enjoying swimming in the pool. At one point, Joe dove under the water, swam for the deep end, and he came back up when he suddenly felt fingers grasp around his throat. He spun around, expecting to see his friend playing some sort of prank on him. His friend was at least 20 feet away, on the other side of the pool. And after this frightening encounter, Joe never went into the pool again. And I, I think during all this, it was really Vicky and Joe who experienced most of the paranormal activity. Uh, Robert uh, experienced very little. I don't really, you know, maybe it was because they were young or whatever, but didn't really hear a whole lot from their children. It was mostly Vicky and a lot of Joe. Joe seemed to be like a lightning rod for this stuff, as you've seen, and as you will continue to see. Over the years, there have been many paranormal investigators who have walked the grounds and the home of Fox Hollow Farm. But author Richard Estep and his crew conducted uh, an extensive two investigations over the course of seven days. The first investigation took place over three days in the winter of 2016. Very little happened until Joe himself came up for a night of investigations. Joe had come to believe that there were no less than seven spirits haunting the farm, including her Baumeister himself, and some sort of elemental that seemed to only live out in the wooded area. 
Joe took the team into the pump house for the pool. It has been thought that Herb Bymaster might have stored some of his victims in the pump house before uh, placing them out in the woods. And this is also where that hose would have been. Here, Joe started to shout and provoke what he thought was the ghost of Herb Baumeister. As he did this, the team's EMF meters would spike whenever he would shout another insult towards the now dead serial killer. After the spikes, it would be Richard Estep who would feel someone caress his back. A cold, almost loving caress, he would later go on to say. The only person that could have done it was behind him, and this person had both of their hands firmly on their camera. Then, seconds later, Aaron, another investigator on the team, was poked by some unseen force in her back. After this, Joe left the team to continue on alone. On their final night there, Estep actually got into the pool in order to get some sort of activity. And they did catch an EVP saying something to the tune of Laura, maybe. And you can hear it over Richard complaining about how cold the water is. And uh, he's posted some pictures and some video, I think, if you dig up his Facebook and his Twitter and whatnot, of him in that pool saying just how cold it was. Because it was like, they went in November. He ain't using the pool in November. So it wasn't on, it wasn't heated. Also, it was November. And they really, that first that first time there, they kind of just stuck to the pool area. They didn't go to the apartment because one of the kids, one of the sons was living in that apartment and he was there. So they couldn't go up there and like investigate and disturb. And they couldn't do a whole lot out on the grounds because it was just too cold. It was the middle of November. But 18 months later, Richard would return with a smaller team. But this time they spent an extra day and got to explore more of the house and the grounds. On their first night there, they headed straight for the pump room and started an EVP session. What they got was not an EVP, but an audible screech that they all heard and was captured on their recorders. Later into the second investigation, they were once again joined by Joe. And this time, he took them up to his old apartment. And this time, uh, the, uh, the son was out of town or he had, he had given them permission and they all went to a hotel with her or something. And uh, they, got, they were able to explore it this time. When they got there, they set up an SLS camera. And if you don't know what an SLS camera is, it's very much like an Xbox Kinect or something. It's, uh, you've seen it on ghost hunting shows if you've watched any of them. And it's that thing where it will pick up movement and it will show us like a skeletal uh, stick figure of the person moving. And like I said, it's a Kinect camera. So that's what it was programmed to do is to find your, you know, your limbs and stuff and follow you. But uh, some investigators have started using it because it does seem to sometimes to pick up these little anomalous kind of entities. And you'll see this uh, stick figure pop up and move around and do things, which some people, uh, I'm kind of in this field too. And, and Estep does talk about in the book that it, it can give you some false positives because it is programmed to look for people moving. Like it can't make other shapes. It can only make stick figures of people. 
So if anything moves and it picks it up, it's going to give you that. But this was a little bit different because it, there were two of these entities. One came out of the bathroom. I think one was in the bedroom. And uh, Joe was able to kind of interact with it. He would do things that would move, you know, all sorts of weird stuff. Uh, there were, Like I said, there were two entities caught on camera. They seemed to interact with Joe. And one time, the, the first one, there was a, a big one and a little one, it just kind of jabbed Joe in the ribs. They could see it on the camera. They could see the little stick figure arm go forward. And then Joe actually winced and pulled back from that. So something that they couldn't see touched him. And uh, that was about all. So uh, then once again, I think Joe Joe went off into the night. He would just come and help him out for a couple of hours every time. Over the course of the second uh, investigation, Estep and his crew were visited by a psychic named Brian Sanders, who had dealt with Fox Hollow Farm on a few other occasions. He gave them a lot of insight, such as he had, he had, he had surmised that many of the ghosts, many of the entities that might have been the victims of her Biomaster had found a way to move on. There were also, he said, ghosts of many Native Americans still roaming the grounds. Sanders told him that there may be an entity that uh, many people thought was her Baumeister, but was actually not, that it was actually some sort of trickster spirit just pretending to be Herb. And I think that's kind of where I'm at on that too. He also stated that there were two main portals of activity. The first was in the bottom of the pool and the second in the upstairs apartment, which makes sense. Herb, uh, it is thought that Herb did most of his uh, his crimes in the pool or in the pool area. And of course, near the end there, he was living in, uh, in that apartment. And if I had to venture a guess, he probably used that apartment uh, during his crimes a lot to kind of maybe get away or, you know, it was, it was separate from the house to an extent. And that would be like a, a great way to just remain off of everyone's radar and remain private about all of this stuff. They were also visited by Tony himself, who was the only person that could give them any insight into her Baumeister, as he claimed to have had an ongoing relationship with them even after being attacked in the pool that first night. And that is a very weird thing. I don't know if he did it in order to keep the guy appeased and you know he's maybe maybe he thought like if if I can keep this guy you know sidetracked I can save some lives and that'll I you know I can maybe I can gather some evidence and then eventually he was able to do I don't know I'm just kind of spitballing here as to his motivations for that you see Tony is kind of a mysterious guy and uh doesn't let his guard down that much but if I, if I had to think about it, if I had to surmise I'd be like even the I think he knew it was like I could take this guy if I had to um, he knew that he knew that her bymaster was like even though he would snap and become this this other person he knew that he could probably take the guy in a fight after a while and uh, I think he just did it like I think he just was like I think his real motivation for it was like if I can keep this guy off the streets he's not going to get anybody else and eventually 
I'm going to nab him. But once again, that's just me uh, speculating here. Uh, but he did tell Estep and his crew a couple of things about Herb that really shed some light on on him. So, like, this is one of the most serial killery things I think I've ever heard. I didn't know this. Uh, he had mannequins all around the pool. Herb would keep mannequins posed around the pool area. And each mannequin had its own wardrobe, its own set of clothes, and a backstory to go with it. He also thought that Herb may have had an accomplice. As the first night when Herb Baumeister had parked the car, he had parked it in such a way, he had lit, he had parked it on purpose so that it kind of went up a little bump so that the headlights shone into that upstairs apartment as if to signal someone. And then when no one seemed to show up, Baumeister became upset, yelling, you can't depend on anyone anymore. And maybe that was the case. There was never any uh, evidence found of an accomplice, but it could have been. Well, I mean, they didn't really do a lot of searching for anything because he killed himself. Why do it? And then, but then it also could be like, maybe someone was supposed to smooth out that bump or whatever, and they didn't do it. And he was just mad about that and it had nothing to do with the apartment at all. We'll probably uh, never know. He also pointed out a spot on the grounds where he thought more remains might be. Richard Eastep marked the location with an X made out of tree branches. And then that final day, during the daylight, the team returned to that spot and started to do some digging. Uh, they had gone over like, should we do this? Should we not? And eventually they were like, we should do a little digging. We won't go deep. They didn't come out there with shovels or anything. They had like trowels and like gardening tools, right? And, uh, you know, if we find some bone fragments, then it will, you know, it will be bone fragments that can be recovered and all of this. And if we don't, then we don't. So they did a little digging. And of course, while they did it, they had their voice recorders going. While they dug at the ground, hoping to find anything that could bring more closure to the murders, they caught an EVP of a gruff male voice saying, get away from there. No one has ever been able to place the voice However, Richard Estep thinks it may actually be the voice of a man who owned the farm before her Baumeister. They actually end up posting this on their social media. I've linked to his Facebook page or a vid the video of it, which the video of the audio of it, five seconds long. It's uh, very quick, but you know, loop it and you'll be eventually be able to hear it. And I've linked that in the show notes. Since then, the paranormal activity has seemed to slow down at Fox Hollow Farm. However, small things happen from time to time. And the Graves family has learned to deal with their situation and has no real problem opening up the home a few times a year uh, to investigators in order to keep the memories of her Baumeister's victims alive. And uh, that is it. That is really the story so far. Uh, many people, I think this has been on Ghost Adventures and a couple of other shows. Uh, you can find some investigations, I'm sure, on Facebook. Uh, but pick up Richard's book if you get a chance. Uh, there were a couple of other little things that happened throughout the investigation that I didn't include here. Like I said, there's a lot about Tony uh, that I can't quite put my finger on yet. Uh, interesting stuff, but I really just don't know about it. Uh, there, that he's Tony's got like a whole chapter or so kind of dedicated to uh, his paranormal experiences. 
his stories and all of that. But uh, an, an interesting, and I don't think very well-known case, I think it's getting more traction now, of course, uh, because of things like this and the Ghost Adventures thing, I'm sure. And But for a long time, it really just got no one knew about this story. No one knew about these victims. And I'm glad to see that it's getting more traction and uh, more people are hearing about it as time goes on. But that has been the story of uh, Fox Hollow Farm, both of her Baumeister and uh, the paranormal activity that was left behind. So we are at the middle of the show. I'm going to play some music. Like I said, still working on some new stuff. I hope to have a track or two out by the end of the season. We'll see how it goes. And then I'm going to come back with some local headlines.
And our first story is a great little story. It is from CBC up in Canada, written by Elizabeth Fraser. And the headline reads, Stanton Friedman fans over the moon about new UFO exhibit. Exhibit at the Fredericton Region Museum is set to open June 26 and run for at least two years. Stanton Friedman dreamed of starting a UFO museum in Fredericton. And now that dream isn't too far out. The Fredericton Region Museum is putting together the Stanton Friedman is out of this world exhibit, exhibit, I can't say it for some reason, to highlight the career of the famed UFO researcher. This exhibit is to honor Stanton in every way possible, said Hal Scarup, vice president of the Fredericton Region Museum. A nuclear physicist by training, Freeman devoted his life to researching and investigating UFOs beginning in the late 1960s. Freeman, who lived in Fredericton, was credited with bringing the 1947 Roswell incident, the famous incident that gave rise to the theories about UFOs and a U.S. military cover-up, back into the mainstream conversation. How many people from Fredericton had their obituary in the New York Times? How many people from Fredericton became characters in the Betty and Veronica comic book? Not too darn many, said Melinda Jarrett, exclusive director of the Fredericton Region Museum. Freeman was an accomplished writer, publishing dozens of papers about UFOs and writing or co-writing several books. He was a familiar face in documentaries and made multiple appearances on Larry King Live. He also lectured about UFOs for hundreds of colleges and professional groups across the United States, Canada, and many other countries. Freeman was inducted into the UFO Hall of Fame in Roswell, New Mexico. The guy was famous, Jarrett said. He's a cultural icon and he's from Fredericton. Jarrett knows Friedman knew Friedman personally. She said he was an honorable man who had an incredible life. He deserves to be treated with respect for the awesome and most extraordinary work he did researching the UFO experience. Friedman's exhibit is set to open June 26th and pay tribute to the local researcher's work. It's a fact he did hit this work, and there's a huge following, whether you believe it or not, said Jarrett. The exhibit will contain everything under the sun, artifacts, awards, recording of some phone conversations, documentaries and newspaper clippings about UFO sightings in New Brunswick, all that. And of course, uh, large aliens made from paper mache and infinity mirrors will be there too to make the space look a bit more funky. The museum started working on the exhibit in January of last year. Jarrett says that she is hopeful the exhibit will be around for at least two years for skeptics and believers alike. You're a New Brunswicker, Stanton. We love you, Jarrett said. And uh, that's great. I'm glad that they're giving that to Stanton. And uh, I don't think I'll be able to make it up there, but it'll be cool to check it out. And but So if you're around there, go check it out. And the next story is uh, from Republic World by Sudesha Singh. And this has been going around. I've seen this pop up on a lot of stuff. Uh, Jaharkin alien mystery grows. No queries, queries yet, says official source about spooky video. A local authority speaking to Republic stated that the origin of the video from Jarkhan, I think, or Harkan, I think it's Jaharkan, which shows an alien-like figure walking down the bridge was unknown. Deepening the mystery around a spooky video doing the rounds, which shows an alien-like or ghost-like figure walking down the Chadwood Dam Bridge in Jarkhan's 
Harzabal in the dark. A local, a local authority speaking to Republic Media Network on Monday stated that the origin of the video was unknown. The official store, source elaborated on the now 30-second-long viral clip, stated that neither had anyone come into their office nor had anyone called to complain or file a, que a query, and therefore no investigation was initiated as of yet. The statement of the official source has put the onus on those who have captured the video or others to come forward. If people actually saw the alien, why are there no complaints or queries? And if it's a computer-generated imagery, what will be the future course of action by the administration? There are many questions looming over this one incident, which was now, which now has the attention of thousands on social media platforms. No matter what the case, the news has caused a massive sensation on social media, with Netson spooked while some claim that the odd quick creature from Jacquard uh, viral video was a ghost. Others claim to have been said that it was an alien, while some non-believers brushed off the incident as someone playing a prank. Someone even tagged Elon Musk, NASA, and the ISRO to look into the origins of the creature. In the video, several bikers come to a stop after they spot a translucent-like odd creature treading the highway at a distance in the middle of the night. One of the bikers recording the video can be heard calling the supernatural creature a witch in the background, while others stop to observe the creature from a distance. I'm sorry about that reading. It is, like I said, it's not, it's in English, but it's not the best English, so I had to kind of add some words and subtract some words, and I did a little bit of it on the fly. But this is a, a, a pretty decent video, a very interesting video. It, you know, you look at screenshots of it, and it just looks kind of like, it just looks like a person. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't look like they're wearing anything, but it just looks like a gray kind of just immersive human-shaped form just walking down the highway. They've got a bunch of uh, videos from Twitter and all that of it so that you can check out. Interesting video. I like this one. Uh, of course, it is in the show notes. So go ahead and give that one a look as well. And this last one is from the Daily Mail. And uh, I don't see... Oh, by, Alanda, by Alana Tyndale from Daily Mail in Australia. A haunted little girl doll sitting on a swing in a mangrove swamp terrifies locals who swear bad luck strikes anyone who approaches her. Yes, there are pictures of the creepy doll in the swing. Locals in a small town are terrified of a haunted little girl doll that sits on a swing next to Mangrove Swamp. Residents of the new Queensland town Lucinda, 90 minutes north of Townsville, and with a population of 406 people, said they believe she brings bad luck. They claim the doll may be blamed for spooky incidents like boat motor troubles and lost fishing gear. Everyone seems to know about the doll, but nobody really wants to talk about it, a Hingebrook MP Nick Demento told the Townsville Bulletin. He said no one knows where she came from or how she got to sitting on the swing under a low-hanging tree. Most residents know of the, of the girl, as do fishermen who catch lines at the Hinchbrook Channel, but they are wary of getting too close. Even saying a quick hello to the doll is enough to spell doom. I've heard stories of people who've gotten too close to the doll having bad luck while out boating or fishing, Mr. Demento said. Uh, this might be pure circumstance, or just modern wives' tale, but it's something I'm definitely not willing to toy with, 
He said every question he asked about locals about the doll seemed to lean into more questions, and no one knowing the answers. Another business owner reportedly said the doll was made by a lovely, quotation marks, couple, local couple who wanted to add some color into the town. However, Mr. Demento uh, warned that the girl's origins was a local mystery. It said most were wary to find out. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's very, it's not the creepiest thing. I mean, I guess it is pretty creepy. They don't show its face in any of these pictures. Maybe that's what's doing it. And it's, the pictures are taken at night. Um, I don't know. Maybe people just have boat troubles. But no one knows where it came from, where it comes from. And that's kind of interesting in itself, isn't it? Uh, but yes, once again, everything linked in the show notes. You can check out these pictures. You can check out these videos and these stories. And that will do it for episode uh, 605's local headline. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. And like I said, tonight uh, I don't really have a listener's story. I could have I got something to prepare, but I wanted to just talk about a little bit about uh, the trip I took last weekend. Intentionally, it was a hiking trip. I wanted to go to the Great Smoky Mountains and uh, hike Mount Leconte. It's kind of cool. You get to the top. There's a little lodge up there you can stay, and they have uh, merch up there tantalizing everyone to get to the top with the merch. Uh, they have a shirt that apparently they change every year that uh, you can only purchase at the top of Mount Leconte. And uh, that was that was pretty cool. That was enough to keep me motivated to do it all in one day. But I did some other stuff on the way down there. My original plan was I was going to kind of drive through Hopkinsville, Kentucky, because it was very close to the Bell Witch Cave. And I wanted to stop at the Bell Witch Cave and see what was going on. And then I was going to you know kind of spend the day there and then... Uh, get down near Pigeon Forge or something and uh, stay there and then hike for a couple of days. Like I said, I ended up doing all the hiking I wanted on that first day. I got it all done in one shot. And then just do whatever for the long weekend. I took an extra day off and stuff. But I didn't end up going to Bell Witch Cave. One, because their site still said that they were closed down due to COVID. And I don't know if that was just they hadn't updated it or anything yet or what was going on with it. So I didn't want to. I didn't want to risk it. And also, it's a cave. They don't open when it rains heavy because it's a cave, <laughs> and it has a tendency to flood. So it had been raining off and on 
on that area like a whole week and into the weekend and stuff. So I thought, I was like, you know what? Uh, I'm pushing uh, too much whimsy with this. I feel like if I get down there, it's not going to be open and I'm just going to waste because it's not really on the way, but I could make it on the way. So I didn't go there. Instead, I decided to stop in Somerset, Kentucky. And uh, if you listen to this show, uh, you know how big of a fan of Hellier I am. That is where they go in the second season. Uh, that's where they stay, where the you know they do the ritual pan. All of that is done out there. Uh, that is where the Penny Royal podcast is out of and talks about. And that is also where the uh, International Paranormal Museum and Research Center is located. And they're open, rain or shine, because they're listed in a building. So I decided, let's go and check that out. Uh, poke around a little bit. There were some places I wanted to see, like uh, the town center that used to have the old springs in it that they are tearing down and are going to put something new in its place. But there's still a couple of things still up. I got some pictures of it. I've posted those. And uh, I got to go and check out the museum and talk with Kyle, who runs it, and all of that. And uh, not the last you're going to hear of Kyle, I think, on this show, or the museum. And... There was a fun little synchronicity with it. They have a whole, dare I say, hell your wing in the museum. And by wing, I mean a corner. The museum only has three rooms. and uh, But they've got this whole kind of setup of just, you know, memorabilia from the show, some merch from the, from the documentary, all of that. And I found in their little setup uh, a sticker that I helped produce. It was de- It was designed by someone on Twitter uh, named Martin Clinch, and uh, I took that and I made shirts and stickers out of it. I made shirts for the whole Hellier crew, Greg, Dana, Cardinal, Connor, and uh, Tyler. Made one for myself, made one for Martin, all of that. And then I made stickers out of his artwork as well and took them to the season two premiere, which I've talked about before. And I gave them the Connors like, you're selling the merch, man. Just Here's a bunch of stickers. Make sure everyone gets one, you know? And one of those stickers, so Kyle must have gone to that or he was invited, which makes sense because he's in the second season of the documentary. And uh, he grabbed one of those stickers, and now that sticker is uh, in a museum. It belongs in a museum. And I thought that was pretty cool. And uh, just some other great stuff in there. And then um, I decided, like I said, I, I poked around a little bit. I drove up and down some places, looked for some things. And by this time, I had posted pictures of my trip. I was like, hey, I'm in Somerset. I'm at the Paranormal Museum. Da-da-da-da-da. And I get a reply from someone saying, have you been to Souls Chapel Cemetery? And I and I just I quickly wrote back on Facebook, like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And they told me about it, and I looked it up. I mean, like I said, I'm just in the gas station, the parking lot of this gas station. And I, I look it up on Waze. And I'm like, I'm like three miles from there. And so I go to check out Souls Chapel Cemetery. And uh, I got there, just a little itty-bitty cemetery at the end of a dead-end road. And uh, just we're talking stones from the 1700s into the 1800s up until about 1956 when they all stop. And uh, I was going to make it a Backroads episode for the Patreon, but there isn't quite enough there to even do that with. So I thought I would just tell you about it here. Um, I will link 
the story that I kind of looked up online that gave some background to it in the show notes. And I've done a little YouTube video on it that right now is on Patreon, so you can jump on that and watch it if you want. But eventually I will make it available on the on the YouTube channel for everyone. And the story goes that there is there was a chapel in this cemetery. And when you go there, there is indeed a couple sets of stairs, cement stairs, and um, like you can see the outline, the remains of some sort of building. And of course, the story goes that this a strange preacher came into town one day and he wasn't all that he appeared and he started uh, worshiping the devil along with his his congregates, his followers in this little chapel out of the way in Somerset. And when the townsfolk found out about it, they, uh, they got him, they strung him up, they hung him in the rafters of his own chapel and they set it on fire. And it actually, it didn't burn completely down. And then it was kind of forgotten. And in the 70s, they kind of, they didn't restore the cemetery, but they kind of cleaned it up a little bit and it was there. And then in 2005, the the structure did burn to the ground because some kids caught it on fire. Like when you go there, it very much is a hangout spot. There'll be beer cans on the ground. You can tell that people just kind of go out there and party and do stuff. So 2005, the chapel met its final demise and burnt to the ground and all that's left is kind of the stone foundation and like I said a couple of sets of concrete steps and uh, I'm sure that that story popped up in the 80s and it was satanic panic stuff probably popped up in the late 70s or something after they kind of rediscovered the cemetery right but then I wonder like I don't know could it be true could there be I mean something caused it to burn down eventually around the turn of the century is when all that initially happened. He came late 1800s, early 1900s, and then he was apparently, you know, killed in, the, in his own chapel and caught on fire. But, I don't know, it would be nice to kind of dig into it, find those records, see, like, what was that chapel? Like, what did it look like? Are there pictures of it? What was the real reason it burned down? Does anyone know the real reason it was burned down? So, like I said, I've got some video of that. I did an EVP session. Not a big one. I didn't have a whole lot of time. I was on a little bit of a schedule. Like a five, six minute long session. I didn't catch anything of note. But I, 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 want, I want to go back and maybe do some Estes Method stuff and, and poke around it a little bit more. Maybe try to find some more documentation, some more historical facts on it. But I just thought it was great that I didn't know about it half an hour before I was there. And no, you know, it never showed up in Hellier. No one ever talked about it. They haven't discussed anything about it on Penny Rule or anything. And uh, someone just goes, hey, have you checked this out? And they tell me a little bit about it. And it showed up on Waze. And within half an hour of finding out about it, I was there doing the VP session. And uh, I thought that was pretty cool. And then I went on, I did my hiking, kind of got done, and uh, came back a little early and just enjoy the rest of the weekend. So that was kind of my small town secret, my own last week in Somerset, Kentucky, uh, at Souls Chapel, spelled S-O-U-L-E-S. Like someone's last name, not like the souls of the dead, but a last name. Interesting little place. And like I said, probably not the last time that you're going to hear about it.
And that is a wrap for episode 6.05, True Crime Night-ish, number five, or number six. And uh, I am I am out of here. But if you have a small town secret to share, like Souls Chapel Cemetery, a Bigfoot sighting, a UFO story, a true crime story, or just some odd history from a town that you lived in, and you want to uh, get it on the show, we can do it. Let me know. Go to stscast.com. Uh, at the bottom of the main page, there's an email form that you can fill out and you can send me your experience. And while you're there, check everything else out. You can buy merch, T-shirts, hoodies, stickers, coffee mugs, all that great jazz. You can check out uh, episode notes and pictures. Yes, I will update the website in the next couple of days. Just haven't had a chance to do it over the last week with the traveling and the vacations and such. But I will get it done. Um, so yeah, there's, like I said, there's pictures, there's show notes for all the episodes, except for like the last three and, uh, I'll get to it. And also links to ways to support the show like Patreon and all of that. Everything is there. Ways you can find the show, YouTube links, all of that is there. Check it out. Send me your story, have fun. Or if you'd rather go the social media route, you can do that too. I am on Facebook and Twitter. Both of those are at stscast and instagram is at stscast.gram so if you want to engage with me on social media you can go through those routes as well let me know through twitter facebook your own story whatever we can do it we can get you on we can read your story we can uh you know you can send in an article we can do whatever just let me know and uh we'll get it on we'll get your small town secrets on and i just want to take a little bit of time I'm rushing a little bit. Like I said, I got a late start. The sun is up now. The sun is never up. And if it is, it's usually because I'm almost done. So I'm trying to wrap it up here. But thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm Once again, I apologize for taking last week off, but I had planned that. I kind of forgot that that was like, oh, that was going to be a podcast week. But it all worked out, and we got it done, or I got it done, or I'm about to get it done. <laughs> uh, I'm getting loopy because it's early morning, and it's weird. But... Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for supporting it. I, I cannot thank you enough. It means the world to me. And uh, if you're on Patreon, I am going to be talking about another local true crime case, one that I just found out a little bit ago, hit a little bit closer to home than I thought, uh, happened here, around here in fourth grade. I want to talk about the murder of Peggy Casey in the Backroads episode for Patreon. So if you're on Patreon, that's what you have to look forward to. If you want to listen to that, then get on Patreon, and it will be there for you to listen to. So remember, until next time, every town has a secret. What is yours?